Welcome, everybody, to uh, to a session that I've called It's Your Funeral. It's a kind of an invitation to think a little bit about the ways in which we might want to plan or offer plans around our own funerals. Not to overplan, because there can be some issues with that. You need to leave some work for survivors to do, because it's important. But it's also helpful to kind of think think about what you might leave to them. But also in the present tense, and this is why on Sunday night I, I suggested it would be good if younger people came. In the present tense, it's just really interesting to think about, okay, what music might I pick, or what hymns might, or what uh, text might I want to have read, and why? Because that, that's kind of a way of getting at what matters. So the order for the evening will be, I'm going to offer a bit of a, of a reflection on the sorts of changes I've seen over the years in my own ordained ministry. That'll probably be about 15 or 20 minutes. And then I'm going to actually get us into conversation groups of four or five people with some worksheets that you, you don't have to fill the worksheets out, but there's a series of questions on them around some choices you might want to make or commend to those entrusted with uh, marking your funeral and get people to kind of talk about that together. And then we'll do that for a little bit and, and then we'll come back together and do a little bit of a, of a reflection with the question and answer and then we'll all be on our way by no later than 8.30. It's your funeral. I've now been in ordained ministry for 27 years. And over that time I've noticed some real shifts and changes when it comes to the whole matter of death and funerals. We still all die, of course, but there have been some changes in the way in which we're willing to address that reality. So while it was relatively common in 1987 to say that someone had died, it was probably more common to say that he or she had passed away. Somewhere along the line, the away part has begun to be dropped. So increasingly you hear that somebody say that someone has passed. It's almost as if the away seems too final or death-like. To simply pass sounds a bit like a promotion, right? <laughs> and our language about that is really telling. In fact, I, I, I like to notice this window. Um, to the glory of God and in loving memory of Rosemary Gordon Condor, or 29th of June, 1949, accidentally killed the 12th of November, 1969, so at about the age of 20. She was a student at the University of Manitoba, was driving to school on Pembina Highway and was hit by a drunk driver and killed early in the morning. And her family, when they decided to give this memorial, were very clear that they didn't want to tidy up the language, accidentally killed. And actually, if you walk around and look at all the memorials, the windows and the plaques and things, they're not at all shy about talking about this person died, that they, they'll use the word death, this one uses the word killed. There's only one notable exception in the whole building, and it fascinates me, because it's windows given, given in memory of a priest and his wife who were here, who also died in a tragic car accident. 
But it avoids that language and talks about this priest having been called to higher service. <laughs> oh, wow. Which I think is actually one of the, one of the, the oddest dodges in terms of language. So the issues of language aren't brand new, but we certainly are swinging as a society away from the raw language of death. 1987, we spoke of funerals and memorial services. Increasingly, it is a celebration of life that's held. In 1987, it was very rare that some form of funeral not be held when a person had died. But now, if you look at the obituaries in Saturday's paper, increasingly you see that at so-and-so's request, no service will be held. What's more, when I was studying theology at Trinity College, Toronto, the big question was whether or not there should be a sermon, whereas a conventional eulogy or memorial tribute wasn't even on the table. In the Book of Common Prayer, which is the historic book of the Anglican tradition. Even in its 1962 Canadian revision, the Order for the Burial of the Dead, as the service is called, included no place for any sermon at all. In fact, that service, in that service, the name of the dead person was spoken only once, right at the very end of the portion of the liturgy held in the church, so prior to the cemetery. And it came in the context of this prayer. Almighty God, with whom do live the spirits of them that depart hence in the Lord, and with whom the souls of the faithful are in joy and felicity, we praise and magnify thy holy name for all thy servants who have finished their course and kept the faith, and committing our brother, sister, name. To thy gracious keeping, we pray that we with him or her and with all those that are departed in the true faith of thy holy name may have our perfect consummation and bliss, both in body and soul, in thy eternal and everlasting glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, it is theologically sound and linguistically sophisticated, but to our ears, it's a little bit pastorally chilly, particularly when it's the only point in that whole funeral service that the name is even mentioned. Bear in mind, though, that these are the words with which C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, John Donne, George Herbert, Charles Wesley, even Queen Victoria, whose name graced our most recent statutory holiday, it's with these words that they were all buried. In their worlds, it was sufficient. In fact, well, part of the principle was that the service be kind of uniform. So whether you're Queen Victoria or the guy who cleans Queen Victoria's stables, when you die, it is the same order that's used. In our world, though, that becomes problematic for people because we feel as if if it's that sort of uniform, the individual gets lost. It's a changed world. And so, 1985, Book of Alternative Services of the Anglican Church seemed very progressive indeed because it offered the following rubric or comment at the beginning of the service. It said, the celebrant, the pastor or priest, welcomes the congregation 
and may at this time or after the readings express thanksgiving for the gifts of the deceased person, especially the marks of a Christian life. Such remarks, without denying the legitimate grief of the mourners, should relate the life and death of the Christian to the victory of Christ. Now note um, that this is framed in terms of the celebrant may, not should, may, and that it is remarks that are made, which kind of suggests remarks, right? Short. I think those words were quite carefully chosen by these cautious liturgical revisers. Trinity College, my own pastor <coughs> theology professor, was quite in sympathy with this new innovation, believing that it was good and right to express thanksgiving for the gifts of the deceased person, and to set that in a theologically sound homiletical context. I suspect, though, that that pastoral theology professor imagined something no longer than about five minutes. So when I graduated and arrived back in Winnipeg to assume my ministry as the newly ordained associate at St. Paul's Church in Fort Gary, I discovered that the parish priest, now my father-in-law, <laughs> was of the old school when it came to funeral sermons. He'd never preached a funeral sermon. He was not opposed to my doing so, preaching something brief at a funeral. He just wasn't going to change his practice. An experienced colleague and somebody who was, for me, very much a mentor, told me that when he'd been first ordained, his supervising priest had told him he had to speak at funerals. And that each time, at each funeral, he needed to basically say the same thing, just sort of shifted for circumstance. He needed to tell the congregation they had three pieces of work to do. They needed to remember with thanksgiving, they needed to grieve, and they needed to release the deceased person into the hands of God. And that piece of wisdom that this mentor gave to me has actually been the starting point for pretty much every funeral sermon I've ever written and preached. I presided at a lot of funerals over the first two years of my ministry, those two years as an assistant at St. Paul's. But then from there I moved to Marymount to work as chaplain at this girls' treatment center for six years, and then from there to St. John's College to be chaplain and dean of residence. These are young people's Places And so for the better part of a decade, I presided at almost no funerals at all. 1998, I returned to parish life at St. Bede's Anglican Church, which was partnered with St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in St. James. And it all changed because uh, St. Bede's was a parish with many older people. And it was located in a neighborhood that had an aging demographic. And so I began to do quite a number of funerals and continued to do so for six years. And as that unfolded, I noticed some real changes around the assumptions as to how people were approaching the whole matter. People with a strong connection to the life of the parish still talked about death, and they did talk about funerals. People with more vestigial connection use the language of passing on and memorials, occasionally 
that phrase, celebration of life, began to creep in. The eulogy had become non-negotiable. There was going to be a eulogy at a, at a funeral, no question. I was still asked to preach a sermon, or if the person was somewhat less directly connected to the parish, to say a few words, won't you, Reverend? But for people connected to the parish, they did want a sermon, but they also wanted a eulogy. The eulogy was often delivered by a relative or a close family friend. And increasingly, in many of those funerals, it had the feel of an after-dinner speech at a retirement party. Lots of little jokes to go along with the more somber moments. And increasingly, I was aware that there were requests for more than one eulogy. I hadn't seen that in the 80s. More than one person wanted or needed to speak, and often a grandchild had written a poem or a prayer that they wanted to read. And again, I had not seen any sign of that in the 80s. And while that little church didn't have any capacity for video slideshows, large displays, and neither do we here, large displays of pictures and memorabilia began to appear. And that was particularly when the connection of the family to the parish was thin. I mean, even if the person whose funeral it was and was really connected, if their children and, and extended family had a kind of a thin church connection, it seemed as if they wanted more stuff, more pictures, more displays, more stuff. The more connected the family, the less the need for all the extras. It seemed as if the people with connections had a kind of a basic trust in the liturgy itself probably reflects to a cultural shift in which more people feel the need to speak out from their own personal experience rather than to allow a designated person or a designated liturgy or a designated priest to give voice to the shared loss. More and more people seem to want to have their turn. It's interesting. I wonder too, though, if we've tried to cram everything into the funeral itself, forgetting or forsaking some other patterns and practices. When I think of the Mennonite funerals I've been to, especially the small town Mennonite funerals, where you know after the service you go down into the church basement and there's wheat coffee and <laughs> plates with Bothwell cheese. <laughs> You've been at these. And, and slices of summer sausage. Um, and buns. And buns, absolutely. <laughs> all that stuff. And then there's this Plots. time with, with, an, uh, with, yeah, plots. This time with the open mic. And all of the people who feel that they need to say something are given the opportunity. Sometimes they can go on for a long time, but it's kind of, it's accepted practice in those communities. That's where you give voice to that, in that, that community, shared food, shared story, shared song, sometimes context. And the funeral service upstairs had done it, a different parallel work. Sometimes I think we're cramming it all into one. I also think that in smaller rural communities, um, visits were paid to grieving families, and informal tributes, stories, and memories 
were shared around the kitchen table. And we're in a less connected urban context. We're also trying to take all those things and cram it all into the church service. When your community connections bring you into regular contact with, with one another, it's much easier to share grief and bear one another's burdens, right? And so we, we, we've laid a huge amount of weight on this event in the church or the funeral home. I've also seen that shift that has the celebration of life as the normative name for a funeral and past as the most acceptable way of saying died. I would like us to reclaim our more venerable and I think honest words and speak in terms of funerals and death. The poet and undertaker Thomas Lynch, who some of you heard in the fall when he spoke at St. Margaret's, has often said that a good funeral gets the dead body where it needs to go and the living where they need to be. Which I think is one of the greatest descriptors. Gets the dead body to where it needs to go and the living to where they need to be. And then Lynch adds that a funeral is important, quote, not because it matters to the dead, but because the dead matter to the living. And that, I think, is a really important set of insights to, to kind of keep in view when we think about these matters for ourselves. It's a case of getting that, the, the body to where it needs to go and the living where they need to be. And it's important not because to the dead person, they don't care, they're dead. As Adeline has said this a couple times, I don't, I don't care, I won't be there. And yet, it matters to us who care about the person who's died. That's why it's important. And here's an inter interesting irony that Thomas Lynch points out. He says, for many bereaved Americans, and by extension, Canadians, the celebration of life involves a guest list open to everyone except the actual corpse, which is often dismissed, disappeared without rubric or witness, buried or burned, out of sight, out of mind, by paid functionaries like me. And Lynch is an undertaker. Uh, Thomas Lynch actually turned my own thought around on this matter. I used to say, used to absolutely assume, that I would opt for what's called immediate cremation, which means they take your body from the hospital to the crematorium, bang. You don't have to worry about caskets, it's economical, it's unfussy, just, just burn me up and, and then we'll inter those ashes. But more and more, partly because of Thomas Lynch and partly because of some other experiences, um, I'm becoming convinced that the dead body in the church, even if the casket's closed and covered with a pall, which is the Anglican tradition, right? Whether you spend 500 bucks on a cardboard casket or 25,000 on some fancy brass thing, doesn't matter because in the church it's covered with a pall, which equalizes us all. So even if, even if it's covered, the presence of a six-foot casket sitting in the front of the church is a pretty solid reminder that someone has actually died. We're dealing with a real death, a real loss, and a dead body begs a deeper theology. That's how I want to go now. I, I do actually think that I want, I want, and the same way that I, when Catherine dies, 
she goes first. She keeps telling me I'm going to live longer than her, even though she's 10 years younger. If she dies first, I want to have that body in the church because I need it there. And I think the same thing for myself. But even having a body in the church, there's absolutely no guarantees. In this culture, we can manage to gloss over almost anything. A couple of years ago, a retired bishop of our diocese uh, died of cancer. He'd been retired from his ministry a relatively short time when the cancer hit. And because so many people knew him and knew his ministry and respected him and what he had done so very, very much, St. John's Cathedral was absolutely packed, just, just wall to wall. Um, the preacher mounted the pulpit, and he told us that during one of his last visits with this bishop, he'd been asked to serve as the preacher at this funeral and was quite honored at that request. And that the dying man had said, don't talk about me. Preach the good news. And then that priest proceeded to spend the next 30 minutes reviewing the life and ministry of this bishop in exacting detail. Occasionally and very peripherally making reference to that good news that the bishop had wanted proclaimed. Add to this a number of, and the body was in the church. Add to this a number of other memorial tribute, eulogy kind of things, an extensive biography on the order of service, prayers of the people that sounded more like a blessing for a good retirement than an expression of loss, and a graveside meditation that was all fond remembrance and sentimentality. Well, as I stood in the basement reception, clutching a cup of weak church coffee, trying to actually come to grips with the fact that a bishop who I had very much respected and admired had died, uh, David Whittacombe from St. Margaret's came walking over a song coming from across the basement hall, shaking his head, just shaking his head. He walked up and he said, do you think anyone noticed there was a dead body in the church? <laughs> Can't we do better? Can't we tell the bloody truth when we bury a bishop of the church? Then he said something else that I will loosely translate as, for crying out loud. <laughs> That's a very, very free translation. Point is, we do need to notice, uh, to really notice that we're dealing with dead bodies, that we're dealing with death and loss. And for all of the tones of thanksgiving and of trust that can go, you know, in a funeral, there is also this sense of finality, um, of, a, of a deep kind of a loss that even, even when somebody like Neil Horwood kind of dies well, I, there's still those moments in that service and since then when I kind of go on, you know, I miss you. Because it's over. And in that, I miss you, there's again that loosening right of your hands of commending him to God. We need to get that dead body to where it needs to go so we can get to where we need to be. 
That's the work of a good funeral. And all the details that I'm going to get you to sort of think about and, and workshop and brainstorm and wonder about together, they're all part of that. Think of it as helping those you love to do some things that reflect who you are and, more significantly, whose grace it is you will trust as you draw your last breath. You don't need to set this all in stone, not by any stretch. You can just kind of play with it tonight and, and laugh. That's good. But do leave people some solid and good starting points so that they can do the work they need to do. It will help them to get to where they need to be. And in the process, will get your body where it needs to go. That's a promise.